Hello and welcome to the latest Moneymakers podcast with me, Jonathan Davis. While most of the UK has been uh, transfixed this week by the snap election called by Theresa May, the world at large goes on. And this week I sat down with one of the most experienced uh, market analysts still working in the city, which is Robin Griffiths, head of multi-asset research at the ECU Group, and a man who's been following the markets in the UK and globally for, he tells me, no less than 50 years. That's five decades of experience. And as a man who follows long cycles as well as short cycles in market behavior, no one better at this point to try and assess where we are in the global market cycle. And that, of course, was the first question I put to him. Well, we, if we were to follow Schumpeter's model accurately, what we find is the two shorter cycles in his methodology have slightly been squashed by zero interest rates and QE. But the longer cycles seem to be working fine, which are principally a decadian cycle, used to be called the kitchen wave, and then the much longer cycle, usually called the Kondratiev wave. Beginning with that one, the bond market shows up the Kondratiev wave brilliantly. In 1947, US interest rates bottomed at 2.6%. They went up for 30 odd years to 1982, and in there and they peaked at 14.5%. And ever since then, they've been coming down. And my call is the low at 1.2% for the 10-year Treasury was the turning point of the Kondratiev wave. So what that predicts now is, over a long period of time, several decades from now, the major trend for interest rates is upwards again. So that the era of disinflation that we've been living through is now over. It's not going to suddenly go off to very strong uh, inflation and rising interest rates. It'll make a slow start, but nonetheless, that turn is in place. So even if the Fed, for some reason, were to lower interest rates again as a protective message, as long as it doesn't go lower than 1.2%, that call will be in place. So it seems that the long-term cycle is working. What fits with this is, of course, inflationary pressures tend to pick up now, and commodity prices, which have certainly been in a bear market for five years, should now be in something of an uptrend. It's a little more complicated because commodities are not just a homogeneous entity. We have to distinguish between industrial metals and oil and gas and that sort of thing. But nonetheless, the turning is there. The decadian rhythm is the one we're going to find out if it's right, because there is a strong probability of the market going up or down, depending on which year in the decade you are. And the history shows the first one to three years of the decade are a bit wishy-washy, little up or little down, nothing much. In the fourth and fifth year of the decade, it usually gets away into a proper, generally recognised bull market. And if there's going to be a correction, a nasty correction, it comes in the seventh year of the decade, and then you end the decade with a little bit of a rally. That last decade, it worked in that the bear market began in the seventh year. Of course, the worst bit of it was in the eighth, but in the ninth, you had a jolly good rally again. So that cycle still seems to be working. Now, the prediction that comes from this is the second half of this year is quite likely to have really quite a nasty correction. So you're saying that 2017, because it basically because it ends in a seven, yes. is a year to be cautious. Absolutely, especially in the second half of it. And another reason is, ever since Donald Trump got elected, equities have been off on a tear, having a significant it counts as a bull market. It's a pattern of rising highs and lows on the charts, above rising moving averages, and equities are certainly now outperforming government bonds. So we don't argue with the fact the trend is up. What we do say about it is 
how does valuation look at it? And particularly when you come to the lead market of America, valuation is outrageously expensive. It's been a little more expensive than this in 1929, and quite a lot more expensive in the year 2000 at the dot-com bubble. But saying we're going to go up to those sorts of levels again is like saying the next black swan I see will be a great big giant one. And black swans don't work like that, really. We're already in bubble territory. And I remember 1987 very well. Then we were very early into a secular uptrend. It began in 1982 and lasted for 18 years. And so we were early in it. And yet, in October 87, you come up one day and you're down 25%. How did that happen? That's exactly the sort of correction that we're very vulnerable to because nothing goes wrong with the economy. Nothing goes wrong with the earnings per share. What happens is the market suddenly puts a more reasonable valuation basis on those earnings. Yeah, I recall in 1987, because uh, I was around then too, uh, straight to, to relate, uh, but of course the market did go up 40% before it came down. Absolutely. 25%. Yes. But against the background of, of rising bond yeah. so Well, we've been rising for almost seven years yes. and 15% since the Donald's election result. Yeah. So it's a fun ride while it lasts, but yes. it's not necessarily one you want to be... No, we feel that the current ride is a little bit too hot to handle, and especially as we get to the middle of the year. It's very prudent to start just saying, I'll put some money in the bank. Uh, and if I must be fully invested, I, I go into those markets which are cheaper. Now, Europe is definitely cheaper than the USA, so that's an attraction. On the other hand, Europe has got the uncertainty of Brexit and Marine Le Pen and all these issues coming down the pike. So my work is saying much better to go where the real growth is taking place, which is in Asia. So if you had to overweight anything, it would be India, emerging markets and, and, and China. And if you had to choose between them, we would choose the democracies, not the non-democracies. Not China, not yeah, yeah. yeah, exactly. Okay, so this is a, uh, a fragile world, and one, one which in investors are currently doing very well. They yeah. have done very well for some yes. time. Um, how do you explain, or can you explain, the Trump phenomenon? In other words, what actually has changed to justify the kind of reaction we've seen, yeah. if anything? What he identified, which the other parties didn't, is that the rising stock market makes some people very rich, but the average American doesn't own any stocks, or even many of them don't even own a property. So they have been disenfranchised and missed out. In fact, the average blue-collar worker in America is clearly worse off in real terms than he was 10 years ago. And Trump picked up on that, and in spite of the fact he's a billionaire and on a, on a different planet from them, he identified with their grief and addressed that issue. And it isn't just an American phenomenon. That applies all around the world. It's the rich getting richer and the poor being ignored, basically. Right, so he, ad he addressed the problem, as you say. Yes. But is he actually going to deal with the problem? Well... Can he deal with the problem? And uh, if so, how is he going to do that? The market seemed to be implying that uh, The market can believed do on day one he will make America great again. He will do some infrastructure projects which employs American people in America. And the obvious ones are paint those rusty Brooklyn bridges and that sort of thing, repair the potholes in the road. When you actually run the numbers on how much of the economy that is, it's quite a small number. So it'll initially sound like a lot of money, but in the big scheme of things, it's, it's not the answer. The second part of the answer is 
China isn't going to try and steal all the Western jobs from now on. Robots are going to be doing that. So mm. when you actually come down to think about it, some of the things he seems to have promised, he's not going to be able to deliver on. And the secondly, I'm sure he will lower some people's taxes and do some infrastructure spending. So we'll have a little bit of a honeymoon period. And now, real events seem to be kicking him. He's, he's having to do presidential things in Syria and Afghanistan and, place, and Korea, um, which may actually play well for him because he was desperately unpopular with some of the uh, Americans. And now he's doing things that a president should do in a way that Mr. Obama probably would not have done. And many people are in favour of him because of the way he's acting. He does seem to have a problem, though, in that if Obamacare is an example, he's, he, if yeah. the Republicans can't get no. his agenda, or he and the Republicans together yeah. can't yeah. find a way to work together to get his agenda through yes. Congress, then he's going to have problems with all these issues. A- absolutely. He won't get the money that he was hoping for, certainly not straight away. But this is what many presidents have found. It. Becoming president is easier than being president. And that the it's set up that way deliberately, isn't it? To Checks stop and balances, of course. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Which is so we can't be against that. But uh, bearing in mind the one thing most people accept that he can do, he can negotiate a deal, and in lots of places that's exactly what's got to happen. So you've probably got the right negotiator there. And I don't think he marries, worries much about what he said yesterday. If today we have a different deal to negotiate, he, he's happy to change his mind and do that. And most people accept that, basically. In due course, they will accept that as they will, inevitable, yeah. yes. indeed. And as you say, he's not burdened by, uh, no. by anxiety over what he said yesterday, no. as opposed to what he says today. Yeah. Okay, well, let's look a little bit more at some of these, some of these markets then. Um, take Europe, first of all. Yeah. Uh, is Europe cheap because it has problems, or is it... Cheap and attractive because those problems are exaggerated. Well, uh, European and in Britain markets have all improved and are clearly now making the pattern of a bull market. However, they are being outperformed by a passive holding of the global index. So in our work, if you can't even beat the world index, don't overweight those markets. You want to overweight the markets that are not, not only in a bull market but are beating the world index and that's China, India, and emerging markets, and America, of which the only market which is outrageously expensive is America, so that's the one not to overweight. So Europe and Britain are in a bull market, but it's not a very strong one, and there are issues that we can easily see uh, that might might make it go wrong. And uh, the, the thing about backing trends is, if the trend is not very strong, it can turn around on you just after you've bought it. So it's much better to have one with so much momentum behind it, you'll make at least a little bit of money before it goes wrong. Uh, and that's not Europe, basically. So let's move on to uh, emerging markets uh, and Asia and so on. Now, one of the arguments that you hear put about is that emerging markets are vulnerable because they have a lot of dollar debt and yes. so on. And though they put their act in order to some, some extent, yeah. they're still vulnerable, to, uh, particularly to a strong dollar. Yeah. So how do you, how do you uh, assess that situation, first the dollar and then the impact on emerging yeah, markets? Yeah, I, I, if the markets do go into a corrective phase in the second half of this year, and there is definitely a risk of that, all markets will come off together. But the ones that are cheap fall less far than the ones that are expensive. They are underwritten by their value. And they're the ones to buy on dips. 
So uh, even my favorite market, India, I'd rather buy it on the dip than right now because it's at a new all-time high or virtually at a new all-time high. So um, I think where you can see the growth compounding into the future easily, driven by partly demographics, the healthy demographics are in India, not the Western world, buying on a dip and being a long-term investor is the right way to go about it. But accept that if market's correct, they'll all come down together. They're going to be highly correlated, just as they were on the way up. All of these markets came up only after Donald's election. Until then, they were basically in a short-term bear market at the very least. You also look at currencies, of course. Yes. Uh, they follow different cycles and are uh, probably harder in a way to analyse, I, yeah, I yes. would suggest. Do you have a strong view about the dollar? At well, the, the, the Donald is saying it's too strong. And that's partly his fault because people have so much confidence in him. But there's no doubt on the chart the dollar is a strong currency. It's been beating both the euro and, and sterling. And it's got the stronger economy. And, and in, a, in a world where people were relatively panicky, they would go into what they conceive as the safest currency. I think that is still going to be the dollar. However, longer term, owning a rupee doesn't worry me at all. And so coming out of sterling into rupees is not a problem. I don't think I'd come out of the US dollar into a rupee, though, so that makes a difference there. Down the road, I do see the dollar will hit a peak on the DXY, the dollar trade weighted. It might easily get to 120, and then I would want to come completely out of it, um, because after that, uh, th that would be sufficiently high to actually negatively impact the US economy. And I'm pretty sure the Chinese will be very willing to let go many of their dollar assets. And they're the biggest single holder. And they have a different agenda now. They don't need to earn dollars. They're much more interested in developing their own economy and the new Silk Road and all those sorts of projects. So uh, I think we, we are looking at a medium-term trend of dollar strength. But somewhere near 120, if we get there, I think we'd get a reversal, an actual strong reversal. Trying to fade the trend for now is very dangerous. You could lose money even if you're going to be right on the longer-term view. And that could be happening if, I mean, if, if the Fed does increase interest rates and so on, you would expect that that would have some impact. Yes. Well, it may already be discounted. It, I, and it I, may, I, of course, not happen. It, which is... it, exactly. It's quite clear that the Fed are following Mr. Market. Mr. Market moved 100 basis points before the Fed did anything. If the Fed catch up, they've probably got two more hikes this year. And the chart is suggesting interest rates have come up well on the 10-year from 1.2. They could get 2.8 this year. They might get to 3. But any idea they're getting much higher than that is off the charts. We just don't believe it. The economies are not suitable for that to be the case. They may, in fact, if markets start to melt down, have to lower interest rates again and back towards, say, 1.5 or 1.6, some number like that. So that could be a trading opportunity. A trading opportunity, yes. Against a, a trend that has decisively turned. Yes, on. yes. You haven't mentioned so far uh, Japan. A lot of people are interested in Japan. They think it's yeah. one of the more attractive it value is. markets. Yes. Uh, and there are some significant changes in corporate governance yeah. and so on happening. Yeah. Uh, but it also has the problem of the, of the yen to yeah. confront. So how do you read the Japanese? It, it's outperforming the UK and the European markets, in my view. Um, it's well positioned to participate in the long-term growth of Asia, basically. Uh, obviously, geopolitical risks in North Korea and others have to be addressed, but I think they are. 
even with the old Mr. Kim, my opinion was China won't let him do anything too terrible, and they're right there above him or around him, really. So um, now with the American fleet there as well, if China and America act together, as they appear to be willing to do on this issue, it can be made a, a, a temporary issue, basically, not a long-term one. So um, with the growth in Asia, which we think will be uh, extremely good compared to what Western world can offer, Japan's going to participate in that. I mean, it's had a 30-year secular downtrend, uh, coming from 38.9 on the Nikkei down to 7,000. It's now clearly on the way back up again. So it's some of the great stocks of old are no longer great stocks in Japan, but plenty are. Uh, I was impressed to see the relative size of Toyota against American car companies. You can add together General Motors, Ford and Tesla, Chuck in Honda and BMW, and Toyota's still bigger than that. It has completely gone past the Western giants, basically. So uh, there are some great companies in Japan with, with good futures ahead of them, I think. And finally, let's just turn to uh, commodities. You yeah. mentioned them already. Yes. And obviously the, the commodity spectrum uh, does yes. cover different yes. types of commodities. Yeah. What do you think is the most attractive of the different yeah, types of quality. The and standout one is industrial metals. It's actually beating all of the other markets we've discussed. It's the top performing asset. So we're talking... Well, uh, uh, copper particularly, yeah. um, aluminium, steel even. It, and basically, it's infrastructure projects use this stuff. They're coming off such a low base when... Uh, we're talking the metal prices rather than mining companies yes. who are allowed to have... There's a connection with a complicated one. The new Silk Road, or the one-band, one-road that they all across China and into the Middle East, will use so many tons of all this stuff that they're now on a long-term uptrend. It will have surges and setbacks, but it, it, on, in my work, this is the top asset class, and you would buy dips on it and find which mining stocks are the ways to play this successfully. And this, is, this should have legs. I mean, we're talking a decade or so type of trend, the big one. When we then come down to the energy markets, we were quite clear that when oil had come up from 25 to 52, it was not about to go to 100. It was going to back and fill, which it is in the process of doing. We think we could come back to about 35, something like that. So we would expect it to drop, especially as the economy is cool. Uh, any correction will come this. We never thought that uh, OPEC would be able to hold together. Um, they never do. Uh, and Russia also has a different agenda anyway. So of the energy things, it's gas that we are much more optimistic on. And even companies like Shell are quite happy to see themselves as a gas company that also does some oil on the side sort of thing. I think we're getting to the end of the oil era of human activity. We had firewood, we had coal, we've had oil, and the world is moving on to something cleaner. Agricultural commodities, at the moment, when I rank all assets, they come well down the list. They're not attractive. I know in the very long term, the planet's going to have to worry about how it feeds itself, but at the moment, they don't come up as rival investments to the things we've been talking about. So it's specifically industrial metals is where we, we put the money and finally, gold. Do you have a view on gold? Everyone has to have a view on yes, gold. Yes, well, I, I actually personally else. own a bit of gold uh, through an ETF. Uh, it, even in dollar terms, it's okay. Um, the magic chart level is 1380. I think it will get to about 1380. 
but unless it goes above 1380, it's not super attractive. It's just okay. Coming out of weaker currencies like sterling, it's done much better than that. It's actually beaten FTSE for many years. It's a perfectly reasonable hold. Also, the things that really worry me long term, one is the debt mountain, two is unfunded pension schemes. If ever those were to unravel, and at some point they absolutely must, then gold will fly. But uh, at the moment, it, it, it's not flying, but it is creeping ahead. It's perfectly okay to have an, a, a, a allocation to gold. Just one other thought, Curzon, you mentioned ETFs there. Yeah. Given how long you've been in this business, yeah. and how long we've both been in this business, uh, one of the significant changes has been the rise of passive instruments, both index funds and yeah. exchange-traded funds, ETFs, yes. which are slightly different, but uh, have become very popular. I mean, in a way, that helps your kind of style of investing, does it not? Because in a way, it's easier to yeah. channel your ideas, the kind of cyclical ideas, into these passive instruments. It is to actually go and find a, an actively managed instrument yeah. that will do the job for you. Absolutely. In fact, in, in our models, when we want to do how would shorting look, we use inverse ETFs uh, as the instrument of, for following that. And in, in most markets, shorting gets punished. But no, you're quite right that an ETF is a very good way to play our work, basically. Very good. On that note, Robert, thank you very much for your time and for your insights into the market. We shall uh, watch how things proceed this year with uh, a particularly added level of caution in view of what you've said. You have been listening to a Moneymakers podcast hosted by the author and professional investor, Jonathan Davis. An archive of all our podcasts can be found on the website www.money-makers.co and also on iTunes and several other popular podcasting channels. We are an editorially independent business with a primarily educational purpose. If you are interested in investment and have enjoyed this conversation, I do hope you'll join me again for more discussion of current topics with leading professional investors. Thank you for listening.